Here's a question. Um, what does it mean uh, to, be, to be blessed? What does it mean to live a blessed life or to have a blessed life? And if you're on you know, any social media sites like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, they use this thing called hashtag, which is the pound sign. If you don't know what a hashtag is, the pound sign on your phone. Uh, but they'll put little hashtags in front of things. Um, you know, it kind of looks like this. That's what a hashtag looks like. And then you'll have a little word after that. Like, so hashtag blessed. It's anybody who posts on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter can put that uh, after what they post. And then if you go on those sites and you click on that, uh, then it'll show you everybody who's uh, made a post or you know said something on those sites where they use that tag. It's like uh, being able to create a conversation with people you don't know around like the same topic. And so there's this thing called hashtag blessed that people will do. Uh, they'll put it on Facebook, Instagram, uh, and Twitter. And there's some common themes when you look through. Why, when do people use that tag? When do people put hashtag blessed uh, on their uh, posts? Well, people take pictures with family uh, or with friends, and they express their thankfulness of, you know, this is just great being with these people, um, and I'm just enjoying their company, enjoying their time, so they'll put it down, you know, hashtag blessed. Someone might do something nice for someone else, maybe give them a gift, you know, or surprise them with a visit, or you know, buy them a meal or something. Um, and then people will take a picture of that and be like, you know, you know, hashtag blessed. Like I'm just so thankful for this person, what they've done in my life. Or perhaps someone will be on vacation and have this nice, relaxing moment. You see, you know, there's like, I don't know how many thousands of pictures of people's feet there are on Facebook and Instagram. Because they'll be sitting, you know, reclining back in like a chair on the beach and you, you know, take a picture of the ocean and then, you know, your feet, your legs are kind of in the picture too. And people will do that. And you think, oh, this is just, you know, it's this great moment, you know, hashtag blessed. Or maybe they're uh, enjoying some sort of, you know, a drink they like, you know, coffee at Starbucks or something. And they're sitting there and it's like, oh, this is just a relaxing moment to myself. And people take a picture, you know, I don't know how many pictures of feet or food or like, coffee are on Facebook that people just take a picture of it. You know, this is just uh, hashtag blessed. I'm just having this moment of relaxation. Or sometimes people might feel uh, happy about their significant other or family or friends in their life and post a picture with them. You know, you know this is just great. I have like the best family. You know, hashtag blessed. I have this blessed life. And a common theme is thankfulness for good things in life. They capture moments when our hearts are full because of the people that uh, we enjoy, because of times when life is just you know, going well. This is how life should be. This is how things should be in life. And it's just this moment of like, oh, I just, this is just great. And I feel blessed. And so think to yourself, what makes you feel blessed? When does your heart feel full? When do you feel happy about how your life is going? When do you lean back and just soak in the scene and think, this is the good life. Like, I am so blessed right now. One of those moments for you. In our passage in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 uh, through 26, Jesus answers what the blessed life is for us, for his followers. When does Jesus think we should use hashtag blessed on our social media accounts if you have those? And it may be surprising to us how Jesus describes the blessed life. And it's important for us to get on the same page with Jesus, to have the same picture of the blessed life that uh, Jesus describes, to have his picture. Because most of the time, we let our feelings of blessedness go up and down with our situations and circumstances, or how people feel about us, or how they, what they think about us. And you know, we may think, you know, when, when things are going my way, 
or I'm on vacation, or I have a tasty meal or a tasty drink, or I have this quiet time to just relax and you know, life is kind of not stressed, or having family time together, and, or just being able to do whatever we want. We think you know, those circumstances are when we say, you know, I'm just so blessed right now, this is a blessed life. And the problem is that we're letting our current situation determine how blessed we feel. It's like we're just kind of anchored to it. You know, we're just bobbing up and down with whatever the circumstances, situation in our life is. And we count ourselves blessed only when the situation and circumstances uh, are matching that picture of what we think the blessed life is. And we count our blessings based on what is happening to us right now, at this present moment. Or how people feel and think about us. How are people happy with me? Uh, do people like me? Am I feeling loved? And it's like we have these moments when you know the stars align and like everything is good. And it's like in that moment we're like, okay, this is a blessed moment. I have a blessed life. And then you know then we move on from that moment. And it's like, well, you know everything's stressful or people don't like me. Or I move to people that are hard to deal with. And it's like now life isn't blessed anymore. And but we wait for these moments when things align. So we have a good day or a good hour or a good five minutes and might take a picture of it or just you know think of it as a good moment. But what if the blessed life is not something that we work to make, make happen, or we just have to wait for the stars to align for it to occur, but it's something that's actually given to us? What if it's something that goes deeper than our current circumstances and our current situation in life, or whether people like us or approve of us? And Jesus says it does. Jesus says, he tells us the blessing we receive from him cannot be altered, it cannot be taken away, and it can't be weakened. It's a, it's a constant. Once you have it, you have it. And wouldn't it be great to live in a constant state of feeling blessed, no matter what is happening around you? And this passage is going to unfold in three parts. First, Jesus establishes the leadership of the kingdom, then people get a taste of the kingdom, and then he describes the blessings of the kingdom. So let's start with the leadership of the kingdom of God in verses 12 through 16. And here in verse 12, we see Jesus' commitment to prayer. It says, In these days he went out on the mountain to pray. All night continued in prayer to God. And he's, we've been seeing this throughout Luke's Gospel. In 4.1, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be alone. In 4.42, Jesus left Capernaum to be alone in the desert, desolate place. In chapter 5, verse 16, it stated that Jesus' practice was to withdraw in prayer to be with God. And here again, he goes up on a mountain all night to pray with God. And this rhythm and habit in Jesus' life shows the necessity and priority of his relationship with God because often we can get caught up in all the doings of life. I need to do this, do this, do this. And we might even get caught up in, I need to do this for God, do this for God, do this for God. But Jesus put this priority in his life where he had a consistent rhythm of, I just need to be with God. I need to go out and be with the Father, the Son of God, going to be out with God the Father. And he says, I need to have this. And if we want to um, have a relationship with our Heavenly Father like Jesus had, we need to have moments where we're getting to be alone with Him, to just be with Him, not just doing, 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 whether it's doing for God or just doing whatever else uh, we're happening, is happening in life. And the result of this prayer time for Jesus is, is clarity on who He should select um, out of his disciples to form this new uh, like leadership team uh, for the kingdom of God. He spends all night in prayer, and then after he calls his disciples to himself, uh, and then he picks 12 of them, whom he calls apostles. And 12 is no random number. Israel was made up of 12 tribes, named after the 12 sons 
of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob had 12 sons, and that's where the tribes are named after. And so Jesus picking 12 to be apostles uh, is saying something. He's, he's making a statement. It's a judgment on Israel's leadership, the current leadership, who are rejecting Jesus. The religious elite and the teachers of the law are not going to be the leaders of God's kingdom. Jesus is reestablishing uh, what the, who God's people are and who's going to be leading it. I may wonder, what's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? It's like, okay, well, great, Jesus. You pick 12 disciples to be apostles. What does that even mean? And the word apostle simply means sent one. And it was often used to refer to someone for a, sent for a specific purpose, like as an ambassador or an envoy or a delegate or a messenger. And these men have been chosen by Jesus to be his ambassadors, authorized um, representatives of Jesus and his kingdom. And in Acts chapter 1, Luke's sequel that he writes, it's clear that their major role is to serve as authorized witnesses. They had to be with Jesus from the beginning of his baptism and up until he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And it's like, you're going to be authorized witnesses to tell people uh, what I was doing, what my life was about, what I was fulfilling. And so... There's other people outside of these 12 that are called apostles, but people recognize that this group carried a unique position, a unique authority, because it traces back to Jesus' cho- choosing of them at this moment. And if you think about the new, how do we get the New Testament? How do we even get all these stories about Jesus? Well, uh, when the early church was looking at the books of the Bible, they weren't like, you know, we have these books of the Bible, uh, there are these books, things that people have written, and, you know, let's choose which ones we like, and we'll give those authority. But rather, they, they didn't do that. They looked at them and they said, uh, they recognized the authority they already possessed. And the reason they would possess authority is because they came from an apostle or from a close associate of an apostle. For instance, Mark uh, was a companion of Peter, who was one of Jesus' 12 apostles. And so Mark was recording what Peter was saying and then wrote it down. So that's where these... Uh, why we recognize the authority of these 12, or the, not these 12, but these books in the New Testament, the 27 of them, as, oh, these are the ones we read. These are the ones that are the authorized witness about Jesus and what he was doing and traces back to Jesus himself. And what's interesting is the people in this group. There's Simon, who's also called Peter. Jesus liked renaming people, which was kind of a significance um, to the names. And then there's Andrew, who is Peter's brother. And there's James and John, who are the sons of Zebedee, so they're brothers. And these are all fishermen, they're partners. And we saw Jesus call them to himself back in uh, the beginning of chapter 5, when uh, they had this huge test of fish under Jesus' guidance in their boat. And there's Philip and Bartholomew, uh, who also met Jesus in the early days. Uh, you can see that in John chapter 1. Matthew, uh, who is usually identified as that being another name for Levi, who started following Jesus also back in chapter 5 when Jesus called him. And there's Thomas, who's famously called Doubting Thomas, uh, because of what happens in uh, John chapter 20. Uh, he says, I won't believe Jesus is resurrected unless I can put my finger in the hole in his hands and in the spear hole in his side. And so he's often called Doubting Thomas. And then, not much is known about James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, we're told, was called a zealot. And that word can refer to a specific uh, kind of like political party. These are people who are like uh, Jewish nationalists who wanted to uh, kick the Romans out uh, by force. They want, you know, Rome has taken over our country, and they would do these like, you know, guerrilla warfare things, like, you know, attacking, and they wanted to have this big, and eventually, um, near 70, uh, AD 70, um, they do have this big revolt, and then Rome comes and crushes 
Jerusalem. But these are people that are like, we're going to take our land back by violence and by force. And so whether that group was officially recognized by the, at this time, Simon is part of some sort of political group that has these sort of aspirations. And then there's also uh, Judas, son of James, which not much is known about. He's called the son of James to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot because you don't want to mix those up. Judas becomes a traitor, Luke says. And so it's like, well, Judas, which Judas are you? You know, it's like, well, I'm Judas, I'm Judas you know, son of James, so you know, we're good, not Judas Iscariot. And so what kind of people make up the leadership of this kingdom? What's their background? What makes them qualified? Well, we know there's four fishermen. There's a tax collector who works for Rome. Uh, then there's a, a zealot who hates Rome. So they're on completely opposite ends of the political spectrum. And then there's a traitor. And these are people with different occupations, different political positions, different incomes, different backgrounds. And some of these guys couldn't be more different. And in fact, if they were in a room together without Jesus, they would have hated each other, you know, been at each other's throats. But Jesus brings them together. And so this shows us like, who can be a part of Jesus' kingdom? Who can be included? It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter you know, who you were before. You can join his kingdom. You can even become a leader in his kingdom. This is the beauty of the church, that the invitation of the gospel is to everyone and anyone. And the list of disciples of a, is a picture of who can be part of this kingdom. Do you have to be of a certain political persuasion, of a certain occupation, blue collar or white collar, or does your background have to be you know, cleaned up enough? No, that's not what we're being shown here. And so we may ask, well, okay, these guys are all disciples and they get chosen as apostles, but what is a disciple? And it's important for us to define that because... Uh, being a disciple of Jesus is what he calls us to do. And unless we know what it means to be a disciple, then it's hard to be his followers. But it isn't defined by your occupation, your political party, or your past. You know, think to yourself, how would I, what is a disciple? How would I define that? You know, if I was quizzing you right now and you'd turn it in, what would that be? Because if we want to be part of Jesus' kingdom, we need to be his disciple. So it would be a good idea for us to know that. And so, and it's helpful for us as a church to be aligned on what does it mean to be a disciple. Because then we have unity. We're all striving for the same thing. Like, yeah, this is what it means. And then we can help each other. And we can help one another grow. And so the definition we use as a church uh, is our mission statement. A disciple is someone surrendering all of life to Jesus and inviting others to do the same. So there's a definition. A disciple is someone surrendering all of life to Jesus. But they also have a mission. They're inviting others to surrender all of life to Jesus. So think about each of your stories. Who were you before you surrendered your life to Jesus? And we all have different stories, but Jesus brings us together as one. He's at the center, and he's the one we're uh, united around. He sends us also to invite others to surrender their lives to Jesus, to Jesus and enter this kingdom. So this part of the passage gives us a picture of who is included in Jesus' kingdom. And the second part of the passage gives us... Uh, a picture of what it looks like when that kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven, comes to earth. It's this taste of the kingdom here on earth. So verses 17 and 19. Uh, Jesus comes down from the mountain where he's praying, and he calls his disciples to him. Then he comes down and, stand, and, and standing on a level place, uh, he's, there's three groups present. So there's the apostles, who you know, were his disciples, and he just named them apostles. There's disciples there as well, the other ones who aren't named apostles. There's a great multitude of people who came to hear and be healed. And there's some people with demonic possession that he's also casting out those demons. And these people are coming from everywhere, Judea, Jerusalem. 
And it says Tyre and Sidon, which are Gentile cities, could indicate that non-Jewish people at this point were coming to Jesus, but also could just be Jews um, coming from that region. And the crowd, crowd desires to hear Jesus and be healed by Jesus. And Jesus heals and casts out demons, and people are just trying to touch him because there's power flowing out from him that's like uh, healing them just by touching him. And this scene is a picture of Jesus' ministry to release people from what's holding them down and burdening them, what's hurting them and bringing death into their life, and to restore them to who God made them to be. And it's, it's a taste of what Jesus is going to do finally and completely for the whole creation and for those who've surrendered to him. And so if you think about like a movie trailer, I'm really into movie trailers, and I know I've used this before, but it's like you watch a movie trailer, and it shows you highlights and bits and pieces of a movie to get you excited for the whole thing later on. It's like, watch the movie trailer, and you're now like, okay, I've seen the movie. I mean, in some cases, you're like, well, I saw all the best parts. You know, I've had that happen. But in God's kingdom, it's like we uh, have this movie trailer. It's what these people are experiencing, a movie trailer. Of like, here's a taste of what the future kingdom is going to be like. You get excited for when God's going to do this uh, for everything and for everyone who's trusted in Jesus. And Jesus' kingdom mission includes two things, uh, words and deeds. And the deeds uh, demonstrate the reality of the kingdom. Like, this is what it looks like when God comes into your life. And the words are a proclamation of what the kingdom is. And so he has this, these two things, words and deeds, demonstration and proclamation. And as a church, we summarize that in our vision of saying, uh, we show and we tell the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child. We show, child, we, we show it, we demonstrate through our deeds what the kingdom looks like when it enters comes to earth, we also tell it, we proclaim it uh, with our words. It's a both and. The next part of this passage, verses 20 through 26, Jesus begins a sermon. And this sermon to these, all these people present, you know, the apostles and disciples and this crowd, uh, and he begins a sermon that has three parts to it. We're only going to look at the first part today. Um, but all three parts of this passage we're looking at uh, today say disciple in them. It's, that's a big theme in here. What does it mean to be a disciple of this kingdom. If you want to be Jesus' disciple, what does that mean for you? And this sermon shows that you must respond to Jesus. You can experience some of the deeds and demonstration of the kingdom without a response. But if you actually want to be part of the kingdom, not just tasting what it's like, you need to respond to Jesus. You can't stay neutral with him. And the people, uh, some people have come just to touch Jesus. Like, I don't, you know, maybe you're coming to here, but some people, I see, I have this issue in my life, and I want to get it healed. And as the church, we do that. Whether people are trusting in Jesus or not, we help people, and we help bring restoration and release to their life. But that doesn't mean they're part of the kingdom. And Jesus says, if you want to be part of it, more of a response is required. And so the whole sermon, like I said, is three parts. We're only looking at the first part today, which talks about the blessings of the kingdom and the woes or the curses of rejecting it. And the list of blessings is called uh, Beatitudes. And when Israel was in uh, covenant with God, um, there was blessings for obedience and there was curses or woes for uh, disobedience, unfaithfulness. And the Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the sea of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So blessed is the person who's not following the path of sin and wickedness, but is delighting in the law, the word of God. And so here too, when you come into relationship with Jesus, and enter his kingdom, you are blessed. Your status 
your position have changed. You've moved from death to life spiritually. Your future is in God's kingdom when he will release and restore from everything that pushes us down and pushes us out and everything that holds us captive. Justice will be done. All will be set right. And you will be on the good side of that justice, not the condemning side, but uh, the, your righteous side. So let's walk through these Beatitudes starting in verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says, Luke says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, And so just that, you know, these blessings are addressed to Jesus' disciples. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus today, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, these blessings too are Jesus looking you at you, looking you in the eye and saying, you are blessed. So the first one he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And poor in scripture takes on a wider meaning, a meaning than just low income or no income, although it includes that. And being poor isn't so much about how much money you have in your wallet, but it's more to do with your status and your position in society in, in those days. So how do other people see you? How do other people treat you? Are you part of the, the in crowd that people are like, oh yeah, these are, these are good people, they're trustworthy, like, you know, they're, 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 they're good with us. And someone could have some low social status for financial reasons, like, oh, you know, the poor, you know, they kind of get neglected or ignored or taken advantage of. But it could also be because of education or gender or occupation or race or family heritage or religious purity and, and so on. And so for instance, uh, uh, one person who's poor in the scriptures is Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. He's working for the government. So he's got money uh, that he's, he's employed. He's not financially poor, but he has a low social status because of his job. It's like, oh, tax collectors, they're, they've started working for Rome. They're like betraying their own people. They're making money. Uh, it's a Jewish person making money off of other Jewish people, and they've, you know, they're kind of like uh, been uh, con- uh, corrupted by the man kind of thing. It's like you're working for the people that we want out of here. And so he was uh, considered poor in the sense that he had a low social status or position. And so uh, poor includes people who are experiencing oppression, neglect, or exclusion due to whatever reason, uh, and it could be at the hands of the courts, the government, or the religious system, um, anything that is kind of like making that happen. And these people find themselves marginalized, disadvantaged, vulnerable, and needy, and their place in society uh, was not uh, secure and safe. And you think about uh, high school, um, students are often part of distinct groups. You know, I have, you might have the athletes, you might have the car guys, you might have the computer guys or something. I was part of the computer guys group, you know, just for... Uh, Reference. I don't know if that's surprising you or not, probably not. Um, but then you might have like you know the popular kids and so forth. And the poor in high school are the unpopular kids. They're left out, they're ignored, they're bullied and made fun of. And that's how it was working in this society. These people who be uh, considered poor um, are left out, they're ignored, they're unpopular, they're bullied, and they're made fun of. And Jesus isn't saying, you know, anyone who finds himself in this position is automatically part of the kingdom. He's not saying that. You know, if you're poor, good news. You're, you're saved. You're forgiven. You're just part of this kingdom. That's not what he's saying. He's talking to people who find themselves in this category and who have responded to him with surrender, with commitment, with faith, 
Because remember, he's looking at his disciples. This isn't just a crowd of people. These are people who have responded to him already and are following him. And in the final beatitude, he says, you know, you're, you're being persecuted on account of the Son of Man, referring to himself. And so these are people who have identified with him, who have committed themselves to him. They've responded. And the requirement for entering the poor is not that you are poor, but humility in response to Jesus. And the point is, being a poor, you know, rejected by society doesn't mean you can't enter the kingdom. He's saying, blessed are you when you're part of the kingdom, because uh, even though you're poor, the kingdom is yours. And it's similar to what Matthew said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so, often people in this position more easily recognize their need and look to God to help them. Whereas if you're in a position where you know, the world likes me. Society likes me. I'm on, the, I'm on the upswing here. I've got money. I've got stuff. I've got a great job. You know, I've got all this stuff. And you don't even think about God. It's just like, oh, I don't have any reason to complain. But people who are in these difficult positions are like, God, you know, I need help. I, I don't want to be out of this situation. Like, I don't, you know, they have more dependence. They may, they may not have much in this world, but they have what God offers them. The second beatitude says, Blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. And being hungry can be a result of being poor. But the situation that has created this hunger is caused by injustice and oppression. Like they, in Israel, you're supposed to be taking care of the poor. And so people are hungry because they're poor. And people are taking care of them. And Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, says, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're hungry physically, but also hungry for this world to not be a place where there's people that are excluded, who aren't taken care of, and who are suffering, and who are hungry, and who have empty bellies. And one of the common images used of the kingdom is the, the banquet of the Messiah. You know, when Jesus is talked about when the Messiah comes, there's going to be this banquet where everyone is trusted in him. You know, it's going to be this big feast, this big party. And so there's an image here of that. Like, blessed are you who are hungry. Now, for you shall be Satisfied. You know what, Jesus? You know, it's not so much about the food, although that's going to be great, but it's satisfaction in God, in His reign, in His rule. Like this, everything you're longing for and hungry for will be fulfilled. You're going to be at this party with Jesus where you're just welcomed in. You're no longer on the outside. You worry about food, worry about you know, how people are looking at you, but you're on the inside. And the third beatitude is, verse 21 Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Weeping and mourning in the Old Testament primarily occur uh, because of injustice or people experiencing uh, exile or rejection, exile from God's presence. So this then fits well with the previous one about hungering and the next one was about being persecuted. And the tears are from experiencing injustice, suffering, persecution, and rejection. These are tears longing to be set free and for the world to be set right. And Jesus says that those tears will turn into laughing in his kingdom because then you're going to be set free from the injustice and the rejection of the world and all will be made right. The last beatitude says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did prophets. Hated, excluded, reviled, spurned because of your commitment to and identification with the Son of Man, Jesus. 
And the image Jesus gives of how you're supposed to respond to that is vivid. He says, rejoice and leap for joy. And you're just leaping around. Woo, you know, I got persecuted today. I got oppressed today because of my uh, faith in Jesus. Leap for joy in that day when these things are happening to you. Why? So it's because your reward is great in heaven. Why is the reward great in heaven? He says, because your reward, your, uh, that is also how they treated the prophets. Even though we have books of the prophets in our Bible today, uh, the prophets, when they were actually speaking, uh, were very much ignored and not liked. And you're, you're telling us that we're all sinners, and we turn away from God, and disaster's coming against our nation. Uh, so we don't really like you. We like some better messages, some happy messages, some positive messages. Tell us everything's going well. They were not liked in their day. And they were, people wanted them to be quiet and sometimes sought to just get rid of them. And so though uh, suffering at the hands of others, disciples of Jesus can know that their reward is great in heaven. Whatever people do, that cannot be taken away. Uh, whatever Jesus gives cannot be taken away. And so think about it. Is this what you would call a blessed life? Poor, hungry, weeping, hated, excluded, reviled, your name being spurned. You know, do people post pictures of this on their Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter? I have no money to buy food today. Hashtag blessed. I was excluded and reviled because of my loyalty to Jesus today. I'm rejoicing and leaping for joy. Hashtag blessed. I'm weeping over the injustice and ungodliness in the world. Hashtag blessed. Uh, And it's not that those uh, conditions and situations or what makes someone blessed, what makes them blessed is that even though that is the situation and the circumstance, uh, this, is not, well, this will not always be their situation. Someday it's going to be reversed. They're part of the kingdom of God, and that means one day they won't have a poor status and position. Every hunger will be satisfied. Every tear will be wiped away and turned to laughing. And the rejection and hatred they're experiencing now will give way, give way toward Jesus, welcoming them into his kingdom, the reward of following him. And the good news for these people is what Mary said in her song back in chapter 1. That God, all his, she said, His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He's shown strength with His arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich He sent away empty. The prideful are brought down and those who are humble or a poor estate are exalted. And that's the message of the whole Bible. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the big idea of this passage that I would hope you'd walk away with, and that I've been trying to learn this week, I've been like, man, I really uh, often am basing my sense of blessedness on my current circumstances and situation. And so if you remember one thing, it'd be this. Count your blessings in Jesus not in the world. Count your blessings in Jesus, not in the world. We all have a vision or picture of the blessed life, not so much in our heads, but in our hearts. It's what we desire, what we long for, how we hope and wish things could be. This is our picture of the kingdom that we want. It's the picture our hearts are aimed at. It's what we want to be true. It's your if-onlys. If only things were this way, if only life was this way, then I would have a blessed life. And this blessing list isn't just, okay, have a more positive attitude on life and try to be thankful and grateful. It's more than that. It's about what gospel you believe. 
Because the opposite of the Beatitudes, the blessings, are the woes of verse 24 to 26. He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And if you think about it, these situations are often when we feel like we're living the blessed life, when we consider ourselves blessed. You know, I'm have enough money. I've gotten to do this thing. I've gotten to buy this thing that I'm excited about. I've gotten to go on this vacation. I've gotten to finish this product. All of which take money. Like, look, I am having a blessed life. Or I'm full from a good meal. I'm laughing and having fun. People like me and respect me. Like, oh, you know, life is as it should be. I have a blessed life. And aren't these the sorts of things that if you are a social media user, if you ever looked at that, that people post on their social media accounts? Pictures of products they finished, the things they bought, both requiring money. Pictures of food, which is this odd phenomenon that people take pictures of their food and put it up for everyone else to see. And it's like, look at this great food, I'm going to be full with this great food. Pictures where we're laughing and enjoying others, and stories of people doing nice things for them, showing how liked and loved they are. Those are the things that we do, I'm having a blessed life. And I'm not saying that those things, in and of themselves, are bad. And certainly, Jesus didn't think that either. And we count those things as situations where God has brought blessing into our life. But if that's what we're chasing constantly, if that's what we're waiting for, if that's what we're, our hope is in, then we've believed a different gospel and are living a different kingdom. We need to count our blessings in Jesus, not in the world. And it's about, if we're believing this, we're looking to a different Savior, a different King, a different God. It's a different gospel. If your blessed life is what's on the list of woes, you're living for a different kingdom. That's the kingdom of this world. Your, your picture of the blessed life is not what Jesus says is the blessed life. So, Luke, as we saw in the first four verses, he's writing to people who need certainty. He's like, I'm writing these things to you so you may have certainty about what you've been taught. Because if we're sitting around and we're saying, guess what? This is great. I'm part of Jesus' kingdom. But we're like, well, if I'm poor... I'm looked down on in the world. I don't have any food. I'm weeping and mourning. And people kind of hate me for my beliefs. This does not feel like the kingdom of God. I thought it was going to be like Jesus is going to take care of everything. I thought I was going to have a good life now because I joined the kingdom of God. So if you're sitting around thinking that, and then Luke, Luke says he's writing, I'm writing to give you certainty about what you've been taught. You are truly part of the kingdom of God, even if your situation and circumstances do not feel like it at this moment. And he's saying this is why you can still count yourself blessed. We need to look beyond our right now, present circumstances for joy that lasts. We need to base our joy uh, not on our worldly position, but on our kingdom position. And measure uh, your kingdom position to see if you're blessed. And lasting joy can only come from things that last. And all these things, we, we we need joy that floats above our circumstances that can't be touched or taken away by the world. So as I said, this passage is about Jesus' disciples. mentions disciples in all three sections that we went through. And so, ask yourself, what sort of outlook on life do I have as a disciple of Jesus? Do you, do you think every day, man, I'm blessed. No matter what happened today, I'm blessed. I, I have trouble believing that. It's hard to believe that. And think, what have you attached yourself for joy? And there's this 
quote that perhaps you've heard, but it's a famous quote by C.S. Lewis, and he says this, The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion is crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is not part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So the two things in there. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak, and that we are far too easily pleased. So do you find yourself looking at your circumstances, situation, and what you have, what you can do, and what other people think of you? is like, this is what's going to bring me a blessed life. Um, the Gospels say we're just far too easily pleased. And Jesus isn't saying, uh, don't go looking for blessing. Don't go looking for joy. He says, Find a better source of it. The source, the world is not a good source of blessing and joy. It's also uh, temporary and weak and can be taken away. There's things that uh, cannot last. And we may ask, well, why do we settle for all? Why do we settle for these things? Like, oh, you want to find my joy in this thing uh, that is temporary? Because every company, you know, in the United States and the planet is spending millions of dollars to get you to buy their version of the blessed life, the, the picture of the kingdom that they are holding out to you. Politicians are trying to get you to vote for their version of the good life. TV shows, movies, Netflix, Amazon, apps on your phone, the world is programming us to have a vision of the blessed life, and they're saying, if you have this, if you buy our product, you will get the blessed life. So saying, here's the vision of the blessed life in this commercial, in this movie, and if you want it, buy our product and we'll give you that blessed life. And the current, you know, if you're in like a river or an ocean, the current of the world, that if you're just sitting in it, it's taking you toward this picture, a vision of the blessed life, of what the kingdom is like in their definition. And unless we're continually paddling against it, we'll just be swept down by it and we'll, we'll believe it and take it um, into our lives. So ask, what have, you, what have you tied your sense of blessing to? What, have you, what are you holding on to, uh, hoping it will eventually bless you and give you joy? The things of this world may be quicker, may be easier, but they're microwave blessings. They're not crockpot blessings. That's kind of what this is. You, know, you, you may be feeling this now, but in the future it will be this way. The crock, you know, Jesus has got this crockpot going on of his kingdom coming into this world. And what does the world offer? Money, material things, a good time, popularity? It's also temporary. It's nothing to build a life on. It's not a good foundation. And Jesus is cooking this amazing feast. And often we settle for hot pockets and TV dinners. Not literally, but you know, spiritually. Jesus is writing a beautiful masterpiece of a story, like the greatest movie ever. And we settle for re reruns of junk on TV. 
you know, spiritually, of like, Jesus is offering us this, but then we so much better, like, ah, hot pockets quicker. You know, Jesus is writing this huge story, but, ah, you know, these reruns are already done, so I'm going to, you know, watch those. And so we can base our blessing, our sense of blessing, on what we do, what we have, what others think of us. Like I said, this is tough. As I've been going through this passage, I'm like, man, I so often, how often do I actually feel blessed? And it's like, is it the things I'm working for and what I do? Or is it the things that I have? Like, oh, if I have this thing, you know, I'll get this meal and I'll feel blessed. Or is it what people think of me? Man, if people could just think this of me, then I would feel blessed. And it's really hard to just, I'm blessed no matter what, because I'm in Christ's kingdom. And because it is tough, we need community around us, because the world has a current that is pulling us towards, programming us towards a vision of the kingdom and the blessed life. As a community, we're like a counter current. It's like once you join a church, this is where you get to hear a message of a different type of blessing, and it keeps us on the path, even though it's like, I'm weeping now, and I'm mourning now, and I'm hungering now, and I want it to be fulfilled right now. So we need to wait, because this world is broken, and Jesus is going to make it better. That's why we need a community. But at the same time, the community is also where we experience those blessings. As you look at the early church, it's like, who, we're going to share all of our possessions. So if you are actually financially poor, we're going to take care of you. If you're weeping, we're going to be with you to comfort you. If you're uh, hungry, we're going to supply food for you. And we're all going to do, get in this together. And even if I'm rejected and hated by people out there who don't like my faith, um, I still have this community where I belong and I'm not rejected and then excluded. And we help each other in poverty and hunger and mourning and persecution. So what vision of a blessed life do you have? And what are you pursuing to feel blessed? Let's pray that God would give us a picture of his kingdom in our hearts, if that's what our hearts would be aimed at. God, thank you that you give us something that cannot be taken away, cannot be touched by other people, but it's a blessing and a position, a status with you, being part of your kingdom and looking forward to what Jesus will do to take this broken world and renew it and repair it and make it right. But that is our hope and where we can look for our blessing. So would you fill us each with a sense of how blessed we are because we're part of your kingdom if we've trusted in you. Would you help us to let go of those other things we hold on to. In the name we pray. Amen.